0: Welcome to the CanMed Coffee Talk Podcast, where we talk with the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. I am your host, Ben Amaralt. I'm the marketing manager at Medicinal Genomics and proud member of the team that puts on the CanMed Conference. Speaking of the CanMed Conference, have you gotten your tickets yet for CanMed 2022? If yes, then I can't wait to see you out in Pasadena this May for another fantastic event. And if not, what are you waiting for? Head over to CanMedEvents.com now to get your tickets. At CanMed 2022, you will learn from the leading minds in cannabis science, medicine, cultivation, and safety testing. And if you want proof of that, look no further than our keynote presenters. Representing our science focus area, we have Dr. Ethan Rousseau presenting about cannabis and psychiatry. Representing our cultivation focus area, we have Dr. Seth Crawford talking about innovations in hemp breeding. Grace Bandong, our safety keynote presenter, will talk about building a comprehensive analytical testing program, and finally, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein will discuss cannabis medicine for children as our medical keynote. Those presentations alone are worth the price of admission, but please go to CanMedEvents.com to see the full schedule. And if you want a preview of what you can expect at CanMed 2022, check out our CanMed Archive which is a searchable video library of all the past CanMed presentations and panels. Find that at CanMedEvents.com. At this year's event, we are also offering a full-day pre-conference medical practicum taking place on May 3rd. The medical practicum is led by Dr. Bonnie Goldstein, Dr. Dustin Sulak, Dr. Kevin Spellman, and Eloise Thiessen. Each of them will share the latest medical cannabis research, including information on dosing, drug interactions, and different product types. They will also share their clinical experience they have acquired treating patients with medical cannabis. This really is a must-attend event for any healthcare professionals who are interested in recommending medical cannabis, but it's not limited to those folks. Anyone who is interested in learning more about medical cannabis can and should join us for this event head over to canmedevents.com practicum to learn more. Of course, if you can't make it to CanMed 2022, we have a number of resources to help you stay engaged with our community and enjoy some world-class educational content. You are already off to a good start listening to the CanMed Coffee Talk podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button so new episodes download to your device automatically. Second, We have the CanMed archive that I mentioned earlier. It's a searchable video library of all the past CanMed presentations and panels that you can find at CanMedEvents.com. While you're at CanMedEvents.com, be sure to sign up for email alerts. That's the best way to make sure you are up to date on all the latest CanMed news and special offers. Fourth, we have our CanMed Community Facebook group, which is a great place to share and discuss news and topics related to cannabis science. The link to that group is in the show description. And finally, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Just search for CanMed events. This episode, we are talking all about heavy metal testing with Robert Thomas. Robert is the principal of Scientific Solutions, a consulting company that serves the training, application, marketing, and writing needs of the trace element user community. He has worked in the field of atomic and mass spectrometry for more than 45 years, including 25 years for a manufacturer of atomic spectroscopic instrumentation. In recent years, Rob has become a prolific writer on the topic, with more than 100 technical publications to his name. In fact, he literally wrote the book on ICP-MS, the technology labs use to detect trace elements. And in his latest book, titled Measuring Heavy Metal Contaminants in Cannabis and Hemp, he applies his knowledge to the nascent cannabis and hemp testing space. In our conversation, we discuss what brought Rob to the cannabis and hemp industry, how heavy metal testing in the cannabis and hemp industry differs from the pharmaceutical industry, why cannabis and hemp are particularly susceptible to heavy metal contamination, the multiple sources of contamination throughout the cultivation and processing process, steps growers and producers can take to limit heavy metal contamination, and the current and future regulatory requirements for heavy metal testing. Before we get to my conversation with Rob, I'd like to thank this episode's sponsor, Pigment Tracker. The Pigment Tracker is a fluorescence spectrophotometer designed to allow cannabis processors and operators a way to quickly, accurately, and cheaply record the pigments in an extract or flower sample. Record-keeping allows for more repeatable processing, which lowers the likelihood that batches will be rejected by clients or final consumers. For more information, check out Pigment Tracker's Instagram account. We've provided a link in the show description. Okay, and without any further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Robert Thomas. Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. welcome i'm glad i could make it okay so you have decades of experience with heavy metal testing that you are now applying or you're lending your expertise to the cannabis industry so maybe a great place to start would be tell us a bit about your background and what attracted you or got you started in the cannabis industry
1: sure yeah i think to put it all into context i think it's good to understand that i'm not from this industry But I found the industry about three years ago, having worked 25 years for the Perkin-Elmer Corporation as an analytical chemist in the field of atomic and mass spectroscopy. I took one of the retirement packages a few years ago, and I ventured into the field of science writing. I always liked to write, and I think I was reasonably good at doing it. So I started looking around for opportunities. Fortunately, I had made a lot of good editorial contacts, and I started getting requests to write about trace element analysis. Um, probably the one thing that put me on the map with regard to trace element analysis publications was I did a 15 part series on ICPMS um, for the journal Spectroscopy in the mid 2000s. That gave me a lot of visibility and a lot of exposure. It eventually led to a textbook uh, on ICPMS in the mid 2000s and all of a sudden, um, I was getting visibility um, in a global sense because my book was sold all over the world. It was English, of course, but I was fortunate enough to get it translated into Mandarin and into Spanish. So that gave me additional visibility. Um, At that time, I was asked to serve on the American Chemical Society uh, Committee for Reagent Chemicals. I was asked to lead the Heavy Metals Task Force. So I came on, on board around about that time And um, I was fortunate enough to be involved with helping United States Pharmacopeia update their heavy metal testing procedure, uh, which eventually came out in Chapters 232 and 233. The ACS was an interested stakeholder um, with the USP, and we had both used a heavy metal test for almost 100 years, which was a colorimetric sulfide precipitation test, which was very crude, and did not work correctly. And it was impacted by the experience of the analyst. So it was totally inappropriate. And it was only for a small group of metals, lead in particular. So um, USP um, were, were involved with changing that method because the pharmaceutical industry for so many years did not have an accurate test to actually quantify elemental impurities in pharmaceutical products. So with the FDA behind them, USP were tasked with coming out with brand new plasma spectrochemistry test methods to come out with a, an accurate and precise test for replacing that sulfide precipitation test. And at the ACS, we were also doing that because our book of compendial standards is a book that's recommended by USP in their USP NFL book. And we found that if we were gonna change our method and USP were changing their method, it would be good to align them. So in fact, I was on many meetings with the USP which discussed how would we change the method, what was important, and how we would go about the process of changing it. Um, USP um, worked very slowly, Um, ACS does to a certain extent, but we managed to change our methodology from the sulfur precipitation test to. ICP-OES and ICP-MS in a few years. Yet USP took in excess of 15 years to do that. It was frustrating, but we understood that at that time, because they were trying to align the method with Europe and the rest of the world, and particularly to align it with ICH Q3D directives. So they took a long time. But in January 2018, they came out with a standardized method for both ICP-OES and ICP-MS together with elemental impurities for 24 heavy metals based on the method of delivery. So they came out in 2018, I had worked with them over over a number of years up to that point being the heavy metals um, leader of the task force at the ACS. So I saw an opportunity to really leverage that information which I've learned and I was still going ahead with my writing, and I just felt that, based on that, I presented to my publisher an opportunity for another book, which was elemental impurities in pharmaceuticals. Um, if you know, if you know textbook publishers, it takes a whole lot of proposals and justifications to get something approved. So it took a while, but eventually they agreed uh, f- for me to go ahead and do that. So I gave them an outline. Took me. Um, I used a lot of the material that I put together for my ICPMS book, so it didn't take as long to actually put together a book on elemental impurities and pharmaceuticals, it took me another 12 months, but it helped having done a book. So in March of 2018 to coincide with the approval of USP chapters 232 and 233, I came out with my book, which was great for me because it put me on the map in the pharmaceutical industry. So that again, gave me a lot of opportunities and a lot of more writing possibilities. Um, However, at that time, I got to know the USP folks very well. They suggested that I should take a look at the cannabis industry because they felt that they were in need of help. And they did not have a good understanding of heavy metal contaminants in the entire manufacturing process from cultivation to processing, to extraction, to production, to packaging, to delivery. So I'm um, a little hesitant. I just finished a book. And as a writer of books, um, you, it consumes you for the time you're writing it. You, you really don't have time to do anything else. So I just finished my farmer book. So I was hesitant to really get involved, but I did. I started talking to some contact names they gave me. And I started realizing, wow, um, This is an industry that's exciting, is fractured, it's chaotic, but what an opportunity, what an opportunity to make a difference. So I said, I said, I've got to do this. So I went to my publisher again. I said, I would like you to consider another book. At that time, I, I had no outline for a book, but I just felt that the industry was primed for putting together an educational resource to help the industry understand this topic of heavy metal contaminants. So again, I had to write another proposal and justification. They agreed to it. Um, That was about two years ago. It took me another year to put it together. Again, I used components from my pharma book and components from my ICPMS book. And I just laid in a cannabis piece of the the book. And I found that very interesting because I got a lot of input from the folks I just met in, in the cannabis industry or folks that I'd connected with. Because that first year I was just learning how the industry worked. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's all I did was to talk their jargon to fully understand how it was working and how the dynamics between cultivators and processes and regulators and all the things that all the things that go with you know with the industry. So anyway, um, I did, I sat down and um, I wrote a proposal, wrote an outline, and eventually came out with a book, Heavy Metal Contaminants in cannabis and hemp in December 2020 so that was over a year ago but that kind of got me the visibility and then all all of a sudden I was getting so many requests for writing publishing and speaking engagements and that started my journey which I'm still on the train I still can't get off it's very difficult to the demand for my time is pretty crazy but you know, I relish that. I welcome it. And when I got a request to speak at CanMed, I said, I've got to do that. Unfortunately, uh, I had to find funding for it. It took me two days to get funding for my travel. So, but I did. So um, I'm all signed up to to talk at, at CanMed. So, and with, with that, you got involved and uh, Dad put me in contact with you. And this is where we and are. Here,
0: and here we are. No, yeah, and, we're right. happy, and we're happy to have you. Uh, as you know, you know analytical testing or safety testing—it's one of our key focus areas for for CanMed. So to have someone like you to to give us information or or share your knowledge around heavy metal testing—it's um, it's invaluable for sure.
1: That's and so
0: I wanted to ask you: so once you shifted from you know pharmaceuticals to cannabis um, in terms of heavy metal testing, what were some of the differences that you found? Whether it's you know in what Heavy metals they're actually looking for, or techniques that they're using, or just sophistication of equipment. Um, what what were some of the things that you you noticed?
1: Well, um, I think the first thing I noticed was that um, the pharmaceutical industry took fifteen plus years to come out with comprehensive elemental impurities. So they had to go the whole process of carrying out a comprehensive risk assessment study of the industry based on the toxicity of the metals that are likely to be found somewhere in the manufacturing process and doing a complete understanding of where those elemental impurities might occur and at what levels and documenting them in uh, something that the pharmaceutical industry could read and understand. And that is fully documented in ICH Q3D directives and, um, it goes through exactly how the how the pharmaceutical industry approached this. When I came into the cannabis industry, I started asking people, have you done a risk risk assessment of heavy metals in your products? And there was this blank stare or blank, mm. <laughs> it was like, what is a risk assessment study? So I, you know, I had to come to grips with that, but clearly the cannabis industry were not flying by the seat of their pants, but they did not have a good understanding from cultivation to extraction, to pr- I mean, everything, everything involved. There are so many contact points. And I began to uncover those as I started, as I started getting information, as I started doing research of my own. But sometimes I was getting evasive answers from many people. The thing about the cannabis industry, some folks are not eager to share with someone who's just coming in trying to understand what's going on. Uh, that's unfortunate. Um, but you know, I got some responses, but I did a lot of research on my own. And I found out there was no understanding of risk assessment with regard to heavy metals. And it was something that I felt strongly about. And um one of the things I realized was that I was kind of on my own. I was a someone coming into the industry with a lot of experience and knowledge in trace element analysis, but no, no, no one really knew me in the cannabis industry. So I thought how can I get credibility? So what? So actually, so what I did was I started working with organizations where I'd work with not so much in the past, but organizations I knew would have an impact on the cannabis industry, so like AOAC, ASTM, NIST. So I started, and I'd had good contacts at these organizations. So I went to them and volunteered my time, obviously, and ASTM were eager to bring me in because they didn't really have any heavy metal expertise within the committees or subcommittees people who were knowledgeable but no one if you like with as much expertise as i had so uh, that was nice that they that they welcomed me in one of the first things that i recommended was i wanted to get together a workshop or a symposium which highlighted this which brought this out into the public domain because to me it wasn't in the public domain it was in cannabis cultivators, processors, regulators. There was a little component of this, mm-hmm. um, other, you know, lots of people had, but it wasn't out there in the public domain. So I asked them if they would support me in a heavy metal um, workshop. Uh, this was this was a year ago now, and um, we talked about it. Again, I had to write a proposal, but I was used to writing proposals and justifications. So we eventually put together a workshop last summer, three-day workshop, Um, I was the chair, but uh, supported by ASTM, and um, we got abstract, we got something like 22 abstracts in and 22 papers in, uh, just specifically on heavy metals and whole aspects of heavy metals from instrument vendors, uh, from from cultivators, from, I mean, from the whole industry, from, from academia, and that really brought it to the surface. So, if you like, I think that's where the industry started started saying okay so we need to do something but things started moving very slowly but that was the major difference between working in pharma and working in cannabis with pharma you had a highly regulated industry and in cannabis you have a highly unregulated industry if you can call the states regulators they are but there's only so much they can do and they don't have the knowledge and expertise uh, to really regulate the industry in a meaningful way
0: yeah No, and I think that's a, that's a symptom of the industry in general, right, is that, you know, a lot of us, regulators, cultivators, everyone was sort of asked to run directly after legalization, and, you know, and, you know, industries like the pharmaceutical industry have had decades of experience and, you know, well-regulated processes and everything that they've built upon uh where we are just sort of making not making up it as we go we're doing the best that we can but um there's certainly more work to be done there so well, i want yeah. to take a, I yes, want to take want. a st- step back a bit and just talk about heavy metals in general like what yeah. elements are we talking about here um what is their potential damage or uh, effects that they could have uh on humans consuming them and why in particular um are cannabis and hemp sort of susceptible to contamination?
1: Okay. Um, well, we know the cannabis and hemp are really excellent phytoaccumulators. They will they will accumulate any metal, any okay, not so much heavy metals, but any elements that are in the soil or in the growing medium. Um, they will attract it and absorb it, and it does not affect their health and it does not affect their rate of growth. So. Mm for decades they've been used as phytoremediators to clean up toxic waste sites you know chernobyl being one example of cleaning up heavy metals uh, you know radionuclides and it's it done a really good job of doing that but there are other other plants for doing that um the whole science of phytoremediation is is uh, is a, is a fascinating topic and there are many plants that can do that but fortunately or unfortunately cannabis and hemp one of the best phytoremediators so they are used for that purpose on the downside a plant that's used for cannabinoids and other you know you, the the production of other things that we consume it really means that you have to be careful where you plant cannabis and hemp now in the early days the majority of the plants were grown indoors whether hydroponically or in greenhouses indoors where the growing conditions are far more um, far more stable. It's, a, it's an environment which can be controlled, so you don't have the impact of weather, you don't have the impact of soil, or you don't have the impact of any contaminants that might be in an external growing medium. So that's the first point to emphasize. So if it's in the growing medium, it will be absorbed into the plant. It will get absorbed through the roots into, and stay in the leaves, the shoots, the stalks, um, the leaves, and eventually end up in the flowers. And, and there's a number of studies out there which show the ratio of how it's deposited in these different components of the plant. And that in itself is a is a fascinating, um, you know, a fascinating way to look at it. Yeah. Um, but the thing is that um some of the most toxic heavy metals which we have which we have, as humans, caused anthropogenically, we have contaminated much of the soil. And much of the contamination that we have given to our soil is based on using uh, metals like lead, mercury, cadmium, arsenic, which uh, are, if you like, the repercussions of an industrial world where we're continually putting uh, heavy metal contaminants out into the environment whether it's from lead pipes uh, from water supplies whether it is lead in gasoline whether it's from um, lead in paint so lead in particular but mercury mercury is another element that we've done very well of contaminated the environment uh, you know power plants spew out 100 tons of mercury every year and it goes on plants into the soil and into the aquatic systems and unfortunately, once it gets in the aquatic systems, um, it gets converted to methyl mercury by the bottom feeders and then it goes up the food chain. And that's why you've got to be careful when you eat um, fish like, uh, like tuna or, or swordfish, which are predator fish, which will uh, consume all the smaller fish and it goes up the food chain. So as a result of that, the big four lead, cadmium arsenic, and mercury are by far the most toxic and by far the most of environmental concern. But it's not only those that are other what are called heavy metals, although heavy metals is not a group in the periodic table. So when people say heavy metals, I ask them what they mean, because it could mean different elements to different people. But obviously, classically, the big four, lead, cadmium, astring, and mercury, but elements like chromium, manganese, copper, nickel, iron, zinc. I mean, there are so many which can be quote unquote heavy metals. So we have to be aware of that. If they're in the soil, they will end up in the plant and ultimately they will end up in the flower. And if they end up in the flower or anywhere in the biomass, and that biomass, you extract the cannabinoid, whatever the cannabinoid is, um, it it will end up to some degree. And then as you process that through the system, depending on what process is used, you get concentration you get purification and you get additional elements brought into into the equation because it will absorb whatever it's in contact with uh, you know metal wise stainless steel brass Mm. um, anything and uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll get into this but there's the whole thing about vaping devices which has nothing to do with the production of cannabinoids but it's the way they're delivered and unfortunately we have what are called vaping devices, which are unfortunately they are little devices which, are, which contain lots of metal components. And when you vape at elevated temperatures, never mind if there's nothing in the CBD extract or whatever the liquid is, you have the high potential of actually corroding the internal metal components and producing nanoparticles of that metal which the consumer or the vapor will take into their lungs. That's a totally different subject, but uh, (laughs) it it, it has to be brought into the equation. But the thing is that uh, it's very difficult to eliminate any kind of metal from a plant that you grow outdoors. So you have to deal with that. How do you deal with it? How can you mitigate it? Can you mitigate it? If you can't mitigate it, how do you reduce the impact?
0: So yeah. Excellent. And now, if I understand correctly, is this less of a concern with other crops because they're not as efficient as cannabis and hemp are in terms of accumulating these metals
1: um yeah i think uh it, it, it's a fact of life that hemp and cannabis are really good phytoremediators. they're really good at hyper accumulating what's in the soil but no it's not it's not um there's other plants which which uh, will 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 absorb heavy metals and some of those plants we consume. Um, there's been a number of reports out, and I've I've reported on them, and I can certainly send you the information. But um, arsenic in rice, arsenic is a big problem with rice mm, because right. it's predominantly grown in flooded fields, and unfortunately, arsenic is a big component in soil. There's lots of arsenic in soil, so if it's if, if rice is being grown in flooded fields. The arsenic gets into the water and the and, and it gets extracted. It gets absorbed by the rice. And there's a study put out recently on arsenic in infant cereal. Right. And of course, infant cereal contains a lot of rice. And um, actually, Congress got hold of this report and they, um, they went to the FDA and say, hey, what's going on? This is not acceptable because the FDA does not do a good job of regulating food in general for heavy metals, yet alone mm-hmm infant cereals so yeah um there was a report recently of high levels of cadmium in chocolate um it gets into cocoa beans um yeah it's it's yeah it isn't only cannabis and hemp it's a problem as humans we have contaminated the environment and we have contaminated on a global scale i read a report recently that up to one third of arable land in the world is contaminated to some degree with heavy metals or some kind of metal contaminant. That's pretty scary when you consider if that translates to the US. So one field in three is contaminated. So the, this is what we have to deal with. And um, the industry is not doing a good job of understanding and dealing with that. And uh, this is this is this is the whole, this is the area that I'm trying to bring, trying to bring exposure, visibility to in the industry, that it's serious and you're okay at the moment because the industry is moving so fast, so rapid, and it's growing so quickly um, with very little serious regulations. At some point in time, the federal government are going to have oversight, and based on what's going on in the pharmaceutical industry, um, I think there could be some serious decisions to be made.
0: Right. You, know, you briefly touched on maybe some ways to kind of prevent getting heavy metals into your cannabis whether it's making sure that the soil is is free of heavy metals or that if you're using you know hydroponics making sure that you have good water source but I'm curious If you know that you have cannabis material that is contaminated with heavy metals, is there any opportunity for remediation or removing them? Or is it something that you can extract out? What can you do?
1: Yeah, it can be extracted out, but it's extremely expensive. I I talked to someone fairly recently about that. Someone who had just just grown a large batch of hemp. Actually, I can't remember where it was. I think it was in Colorado, but I can't remember. And they, they contacted me and asked me what, what what are the opportunities to mitigate or reduce the heavy metal um, level in in this plant? And there are and there are ways of doing it, um, you know, extraction, for example. But they are extremely expensive. So I said, you know, there's a chance. I don't know, um, but there's a chance that you might have to destroy that crop, which they didn't want to hear. No. Um, but it's I I hear of this all the time. And even though I can tell you that the industry is concerned about it, there are ways that they could reduce heavy metals by using higher purity nutrients, clean fertilizers, water that's water that's been tested. Trust me. <laughs> if, you, if you were growing hemp in, say an area where they know, where you know they use leaded pipes and you're using that supply of water. Guaranteed there would be lead in the water supply, yeah. and guaranteed it would end up in the plant. So it's stuff like this. You 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 you've got to be you've got to pay attention to what you're doing, and you've got to pay attention to how you can mitigate or reduce the level of heavy metals in the plant, uh, eventually the flower. So there are ways of doing it, but uh, um, I've um, I actually give a talk at a um, analytical cannabis uh, workshop the past couple of days, Wednesday and Thursday. And someone else who gave a talk before me was from Penn State, and he gave a talk, actually on that problem of how do you reduce or how do you mitigate the, the transfer of heavy metals from the soil, into the cannabis and hemp plant. It was a fascinating talk, hmm. and um, I hope there were people listening to that because this is where, this is where we can have the biggest impact of getting clean cannabis and hemp is at is at the cultivation stage.
0: Excellent. Yeah. And, you know, kind of before we went on that, you were talking about regulations, and I did want to ask you about that. So I know that heavy metal testing, it's, well, first of all, regulation is, is very state dependent, as we know. So to your knowledge, you know, what states are requiring heavy metal testing? And as we know, at least on our side from medicinal genomics, that um, you know, the state-to-state state requirements can can vary vastly, where, where some can be sort of overly inclusive with too many things and others can be drastically under, <laughs> under-inclusive. So in your opinion, you know, which states are, are getting it right or what do you think are the most important heavy metals that folks should be testing for? Well,
1: um, you know, to start with, um, when, um, when states started regulating cannabis and they came out with a list of four heavy metals that was predominantly they looked to the dietary supplements industry and they looked to the American herbal pharmacopeia who were only who were only only had the big four heavy metals on a list of heavy metals to monitor for for dietary supplements and herbal products so i can understand where they came from however what has happened as the industry and different states have come on board they have been a little more proactive in trying to understand well what other heavy metals could be of concern and a number of the states have have, um, increased that panel new york for example has nine on their list the big four um plus chromium nickel um, barium zinc selenium and i think one other zinc yeah uh, but anyway so okay so they have nine maryland had Selenium, silver, barium, and chromium, but they've recently uh, dialed back on selenium, silver, and barium. I don't know why. So they have chromium in it, the big four. Um, Michigan has the big four, plus um, copper, nickel, chromium, and inorganic arsenic. Now, Michigan are an anomaly. I don't understand because no other state has inorganic arsenic. So I'm trying to find out why Michigan decided to specify inorganic acids, So, so doesn't there doesn't be any, any apparent reason why they do that because I've talked to a state testing lab and they report total acid. So I just think that maybe state regulators don't understand the difference. I don't know, I'm not being unkind to them, but uh, there's no reason why they should have done that. Um, sure. So I think some states are being proactive and um, um, I've I've got involved with a number of states. I'd, uh, Oregon, who, who had no heavy matters limits, Put out for public comment their new regulations, and I sent um, I sent my comments in together with a few of my publications to suggest that you should be monitoring maybe up to 15. Um, yeah. I don't know whether they will do that, but uh, at least uh, I put it out. You know, I put it uh, I put it to them in public comment. And Connecticut also had um, were revising their heavy metals regulations and wanted public comment on that, so I sent those in as well. Um, but you you know what I tell state right because I know I I know a lot of state regulators they they kind of understand what I'm doing I'm very sympathetic but I think they 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 understand that they that they don't want to be the first to expand the panel to say 15 so I think they're waiting for other states but I keep reminding them NIST have recently come out with a toxic metal certified reference material which contains up to 13 elements so I so I said look the NIST they believe that NIST should be regulated more like tobacco mm. than it should be, um, you know, as it's being regulated at the moment. Um, I serve on the ASTM committee, D37, and I'm on a number of subcommittees. One of them is the laboratory subcommittee, and we have just written a method for up to 21 elements in cannabis related materials by ICPMS. We're currently going through the review process now. Um, so hopefully that'll come out in the next month or so. So really excited that ASTM are supporting me on this. So they only have the 21 elements in that method. And also, which is uh, which is brand new, um, USP have put out for public comment. Um, they've posted a draft monograph for CBD to be used as an API. So this would be CBD to be used in a pharmacist or a drug formulation. So you're talking about um, you know, Epidyalex, or maybe other drugs that are going through FDA approval, which contain CBD, and in that draft proposal, they say that it that it must meet requirements of Chapter 232 for elemental impurities. Well, that, that's telling me that if they have that CBD monograph in their book of compendial standards, to make CBD uh, that's that's of the quality required for an FDA based drug, they're going to have to be monitoring up to 24 elemental impurities. So, this is telling me this is the way the industry is going. And I'm trying to get the cannabis industry on board to really think about this because, you know, you don't want to be in a position where one year, two years down the road, FDA comes in and says, well, um, What's your list of elemental impurities how many are you monitoring well what, what you know what's going on here i i mean it obviously won't be as simple as that but uh, i'm telling you based on my research all the signs are that the elemental panel is going to be expanded so
0: yeah wow and so you mentioned all the different elements that folks should be monitoring so i'm curious what is like an acceptable limit for these elements? Does it differ for for each elements? Are some sort of like pass fail, where you don't want a trace of anything, or in others there's sort of a limit that's acceptable?
1: Well, what the states are using is the PDE limits that were generated for drug compounds, drug substances, um, and this is um, this is described in ICH Q3D directives, where they spend 15 years to. Understand toxicity based on well-established animal models. So that's that information for pharmaceuticals is documented and it's good, it's it's good data based on pharmaceutical delivery. But you've got to understand that pharmaceuticals are delivered basically four different ways: orally, inhalation, intravenously, and transdermal. So there are four different categories for pharmaceuticals. As you can imagine, an inhalation has much lower PDE limits. Than say an oral delivered drug, mm. but also remember that these are limits per day. So the way they define them in Chapter 232 and ICH Q3D directives is is maximum limits per day, and they give you an example. If a pharmaceutical compound has a maximum has a maximum um, delivery maximum amount of 10 gram per day, you divide these daily maximum limits by 10, and you can come out with an approximation of what you need to have in your product. Well, that's great because the pharmaceutical industry uh, you know is well used to defining you know, delivery amounts and mode of administration. The cannabis industry is not. So if you define 10 grams per day, what does that mean? Someone who's inhaling cannabis, someone who's eating a brownie, someone who's putting it on their on their arthritic finger. I mean, there are so many ways that cannabinoids are being delivered to consumers nowadays and you can't say for certain that someone is only consuming x grams per day and if you're basing your if you're basing your maximum allowable limits on a pharmaceutical guideline which is based on a maximum dosage per day you have to define a maximum dosage in your cannabis product and they don't do that mm-hmm. they do not do that and you, you i mean you know that's my critique of the way the regulations go is that um there's no, there's no logic to the way they define the okay the regulations. But for example, many states, even though um, they you know they lump every cannabinoid or every cannabis product into one mode of delivery, they'll say that it has to meet the inhalation PDEs. We'll work that out. There's no rhyme or reason why that should be the case. But because they're the lowest, they feel that if they can put the lowest levels of the max lowest maximum levels in their specifications for those product. If it's if it, if it's under those levels, the product has to be safe. Well, that, that's a that's a that's a that's a, that's, one of the better that's a dumb way of regulating, you know, cannabis products. So that's my other critique. Pharmaceutical PDEs are based on well-established animal models. They're based mm-hmm. on delivery methods and they're based on maximum dosages okay cannabis you know regulations they don't take any of that into consideration
0: so we talked a little bit about sort of the different sources of contamination that can introduce heavy metals into cannabis you know we talked about from you know from just growing the plant whether it's accumulating it from the soil or the water but i wanted to get into maybe after post-harvest what are some other other ways that you know heavy metals could contaminate the plant
1: Okay, um, well, we know based on the extraction process that different amounts of heavy metal will be extracted into whatever you make in broad spectrum, full spectrum isolates. And based on the extraction method, whether it's CO2, whether it's alcohol, whether it's butane, I mean, there are, there's are so many of them out there. Um, there, there there's definite, uh, and there's, there's information in the public domain which talks about, you have to balance efficiency of the extraction method for producing cannabinoids, and I understand that, mm. um, and extracting the minimum amount of heavy metals. So most extractors will obviously look for efficiency, and not 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 be worried so much about are you extracting contaminants. But I I always point to GW Pharmaceuticals who have their extraction patent in the public domain. If you look at that. And um, it's complicated, but it explains it very nicely that they balanced up the contaminants with efficiency of CBD that ultimately they're making CBD to make uh, drugs like Epidialogs. And they they actually have another one going through the FDA pipeline, which is coming out soon. Um, So they go for, okay, less efficiency, uh, but extracting less of the contaminants. The reason they can do that is their growing process is all indoors mm-hmm. all the cannabis that um dw farmer grows to make epi is grown indoors so they're controlling the environment very very strictly growing um, controlling the watering, controlling the nutrient the fertilizer and everything um, clearly many extractors in the us don't grow it indoors so they're not looking at that extraction efficiency with regard to contaminants. So we know that there's probably more heavy metal contaminants coming through the extraction process, which could further down the, the, the processing chain, could be purified, could be concentrated. So you're always gonna be dealing with that. So then you take it through the next step, and depending on what you're making, um, you know that's gonna be in contact with things like stainless steel mixing vessels, maybe grinding equipment or whatever. I mean, there, there's so many different options here of what the product could be in contact with. But we know based on based on researches out there and you know what I've uncovered, that for example, um, it'll pick up chromium for from a from a stainless steel cutting scissors, which is used wow. to snip the buds. Yeah. Really? Can, can you believe that? Yeah, that's true. And um uh, you know that surprised me, but certainly in mixing vessels, I mean, Uh, you know chromium nickel and iron are big components of stainless steel obviously and if you use if you use a lot of stainless steel somewhere in the manufacturing process your product will pick up one or more of Mm -hmm. those metals and um, in addition to that (laughs) that's going to be
0: I mean that's going to be difficult though I mean of course us coming from the microbial side right I mean one of the advantages of stainless steel is that it's pretty sterile it's not going to be harboring um microbial life as well right but yeah uh, now yeah. you have it, something else you need to consider
1: yeah you know again i could point you the publications which uh which you know which have shown that uh, and, and you know I, th- I think it's important to understand that um you, you you know many times in the processing in the chain of things you're doing in you know in processing the i mean whatever you're making it's not in contact with surfaces for long periods of time but if it's stored in something and this is a this is a whole science of its own is that liquids picking up impurities from storage vessels and when i say storage vessels i mean things like glass things like plastic um we know for example that borosilicate glass which is used a lot in the industry is notorious for having high levels Okay, not so much heavy metals, but transition metals. And some of those are heavy metals. So, what as an analytical chemist who uses glass in the process of analyzing uh, anything for heavy metals, you learn you can never use borosilicate glass. You have to use either high purity uh, borosilicate glass or quartz glass, because that's the purest. Because you know, if you store any acids, any calibration standards in borosilicate glass, you'll get metals that were that, that, that are actually being leached out of the surface of the glass. So you tend to use high purity plastics, but not all plastics are high purity. So you've got to be careful the type of polymer or plastic that you use. Um, there's an example recently where um, a, um, a testing lab in Florida was finding um, over time that CBD and graduated little dropper bottles was increasing in lead level from the from the time that the product was made to two to three months on the shelf. And what happened was that the graduated marks were made from lead based ink. Wow. So what was happening was the lead was leaching out of the ink into the extract. And I'm not too sure what the extract was, but this testing lab was finding over a extended periods of time of testing. It went from round about the regulated level, which was half a PPM. And in some cases, they were getting up to 50 times higher in the extract. Right. So there's stuff like this that the industry do they realize? I think some folks do, Are they do anything about it. Not many. Mm. But there are so many points along the way um, where this could be happening. And then you get in, in, into delivery of the of the cannabinoid. When you talk, you know, when you get into the to the vaping devices, which are becoming the delivery method of choice nowadays. And um, again, uh, it's scary. It's scary to think what is happening. And the industry is not doing a good job of trying to understand that because the process of knowing what's in the aerosol is very different to knowing what's in the liquid in the tank. Because the liquid in the tank is at room temperature. You start heating it, elevating the temperature, and then vaping it um because that in itself will draw out the heavy metals which are being corroded and the vapor or the consumer will end up vaping small little particles of those heavy metals not just the regulated big four but we know based on a few studies out there there's not many that um that are iron particles that are chromium particles that are lead particles that are nickel particles and that's because of the components Inside these vaping devices, including lead-based solder, you would think that wouldn't be a problem. But now the industry is moving away from lead-based solder because initially it was a huge, huge problem. So whatever you're using, whether it's stainless steel, brass, uh, nichrome, cantal, there are so many different designs out there. Um, when you increase, when you start vaping at two to three hundred degrees Fahrenheit, you start corroding the inside of the components, and then it's anyone's guess how many you're getting through to the consumer.
0: Wow. So, I mean, I guess given that, and maybe not so much that last example that you provided though, but the fact that this contamination could happen kind of throughout the supply chain here, is it important that testing labs be testing sort of the final product for, for these impurities? Because I know that that's also very state dependent. Like for example, California, yeah. that is a requirement and you have to, yeah. do, you have yeah. to do that. So your thoughts? Absolutely.
1: On that. Yeah. You know, um, i have going to about this to many regulators because I, I'm trying to convince the, the regulated community and there is a national association of regulators. I have forgotten what they're called, but, uh, um, the state regulator or one of the state regulators from Maryland is, is the chair of that group. And she talked at an AOAC meeting last week. Um, and you know, we talked about that. It was one of the questions I asked her. I said, I need, to get rec- I need to get the regulators to make them understand that this is something that they, that they should be looking at seriously and being proactive in maybe trying to increase the number of elements in your state because the elements that are not being measured are not being scrutinized. And we know, and I've told again to, to many people about this, that... You know, cultivators are using things like nickel-based salts. Um, they are they are flower. They 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 produce larger flowers. Silicon-based salts, which make the shoot much sturdier. So there's stuff going on like that. Mm. But these elements are escaping the scrutiny of state regulators. They're not being regulated. So, and I I'm not picking nickel and um, silicon out, um, and you know for any other reason. But I know that these are used by cultivators but you can argue that most of the nutrients and fertilizers that have been used are not high quality and most of them have been made from phosphate based fertilizers phosphate based fertilizers are notorious for having high levels of heavy metals so you know it's anyone's guess what what metals are being delivered from from the nutrient and the fertilizer into into the cannabis plant so yeah i i you know, again, um, trying to get the attention of the industry and you know regulators, are one component. I've offered to give a talk to this. Um, are you familiar with this National Association of um, of Regulators? Uh
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay,
1: yeah. Um, so um, I followed up with an email to the person, and the talk was a was was a lady called Laurie Dodson, who yeah. used to be. A, do you do you do you know Laurie?
0: Uh, the name does sound familiar. Okay, yeah, um, yeah.
1: So. Um, I said, um, well, okay, so I, I asked her a question, which was a little bit unfair, because she couldn't really answer it that well. But I said, I would love to talk to your to your group about how maybe, you, you know, you know to be aware of the problem, to be aware that that a lot of elements are not getting scrutinized. And I think that's impacting the safety, you know, consumer safety. I mean, I've got to be careful what I say here, because I, you know, I don't want to alarm the industry that all of a sudden that the... the, the that the industry is producing unsafe products but I, i'm i'm just trying to make them aware of research that i've that i've done over the past two to three years which is covered a lot in my book but i followed up with publications and you know, public speaking engagements um i just think the industry should should be more aware of this that's all
0: well then it's a great thing that you're coming to to canmed this year because we're attracting folks from all over the industry and you'll you'll definitely have a platform to to yeah information
1: but yeah i I think i mean that's why i wanted to accept the invitation i I, you know it's a probably three or four day trip for me but um you know again you have to justify your time and, and your expenses but i think it's well worth it definitely
0: Excellent. All right. Before I let you go, Rob, I do want to give you a chance to share any additional resources with the audience that they can learn more about your work um, or the topic in general. Uh, If you let me know, I can put the links into the show description so that that they can learn more.
1: Yeah. I mean, would would you mind if I give you a link to my book, for example? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, let me give you links to a couple of my sort of more recent publications and that would give the audience, I think, a better understanding of of where we are at the moment.
0: Excellent. And I encourage any any listeners to come out to CanMed as well and listen to Rob's talk. Of course.
1: And... Of course. Yeah. Please. You can talk <laughs> to me personally then.
0: Ex- excellent. Yeah. All right. Thanks again, Rob. And okay, I then. can't wait to see you out in Pasadena for CanMed.
1: Yeah, great. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it.
0: I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert Thomas. Check out the links in the show description to learn more about the topics we discussed. And thanks again to our sponsor, Pigment Tracker. Our next episode will drop April 13th. That's two weeks from today. In the meantime, please do check out the CanMed archive and join the CanMed community Facebook group to stay connected with us. Of course, you can also stay in touch with us on social media on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. Just search for at Events. Sign up for email alerts on canmedevents.com to stay up to date with all the latest news. And please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Doing so helps us reach more listeners. I do sincerely hope to see all of you out in Pasadena this spring. But until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and please join us for the next CanMed Coffee Talk.